I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about what is going on in Israel and Gaza right now, we have with us Avi Mayer, who is the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. He's a former IDF spokesman and also former executive at the American Jewish Committee. Avi, thank you so much for sparing some time today while all of this is going on. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So the news that we're looking at right now is there was a hospital explosion in Gaza yesterday, late in the day. Israel has said it was a a misfire from Islamic Jihad. Hamas has said it's an Israeli rocket. How do you cover this as editor-in-chief and with your reporters of the J-Post? And and what conclusions have you all come to? I have been tracking this story since it broke, um, since that explosion took place. And we saw the initial reports come in, and it it was pretty much immediate that the Gaza Ministry of Health, which of course is controlled by Hamas, as are all government agencies in Gaza, was saying that this was an Israeli airstrike and there were hundreds who had been killed. So of course we had to report that there was something happening in Gaza. There was also visual evidence of a fire and and casualties. But I stressed to my team that we needed to be very careful with how we reported this, knowing of course that Hamas has an interest in twisting the truth, inflating casualty numbers, and so on and so forth. And initially, a lot of media organizations did not do that. They they basically swallowed whatever Hamas had been dangling at them. Um, and most of the reports, the overwhelming majority of reports that I saw from official accounts belonging to news organizations, individual journalists, websites, and so on and so forth, push notifications on my phone, were all accusing Israel of having carried out an airstrike and hit this, uh, this hospital. And I did an interview uh, with CNN about an hour or two after the strike happened, um, and they asked me about this incident. And I said, listen, you know, it's still too soon to say. We don't know exactly what happened there. But there is a history of uh, Palestinian rockets, rockets fired by Palestinian terrorist organizations, misfiring, falling short, and occasionally harming civilians in Gaza. Roughly 10 to 30 percent of rockets fired by these terrorist organizations actually explode in Gaza. And you know, there was obviously an audience that was watching this around the world. And I started seeing on Twitter that people were mocking me for having suggested that it wasn't an Israeli airstrike. Uh, Concurrent to that, the IDF, of course, was approached for comment. um, And they said, we don't know, we're looking into it, which frankly, is the right thing to do. You investigate, you see what the circumstances are, you see what the operational circumstances were when this happened, and you draw your conclusions. And not long thereafter, sure enough, the IDF confirmed that it had indications that this was not, in fact, an Israeli airstrike, but rather a Palestinian rocket that fell short. And since then, the evidence of that has just been mounting. So originally, it was uh, footage from various news organizations, by the way, including Al Jazeera, that showed that there was a rocket barrage taking place at exactly the same time. And one of the rockets, you know, fell in that area and exploded. There was similar footage from from several different sources as well. Then later in the night, the IDF disclosed that it had a conversation, a recording of a conversation between two Hamas activists commenting on this and basically saying, oh, yeah, this was an Islamic Jihad missile that that fell short. And now that it's daytime in Israel, 
There's also aerial footage that Israel basically sent a drone into the area to look at the damage. And it's simply inconsistent with what would happen if an Israeli missile or, or bomb had fallen there. There would be a crater. The damage would be substantial. That is not what you see. You see a bunch of blackened cars. You see damage to buildings, but not evidence of an Israeli airstrike. And yet, and this is the important part, the narrative in many minds had already been set, right? Because the other side doesn't hesitate to frankly lie and distort the truth when it suits their interests. And when it comes to government agencies and news organizations, at least in Israel, we tend to be a little bit more circumspect. Um, And I think ultimately that bore fruit. But I think that if you're looking at this from the perspective of how Israel is perceived in the world, this obviously did a great deal of damage and it'll take some time to undo it. Is it undoable, though, is the question, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it is It is a, a good question. I think that the fact that the president of the United States today, uh, who is, you know, he's here, he's visiting, he's paying a, a solidarity visit, said it looks like it was the other team that did this. It's a pretty strong affirmation of the truth of Israel's perspective. And so, look, the ramifications are significant. We know there was supposed to be a summit today between President Biden um, and leaders of the Palestinian Authority of Egypt and of Jordan that was called off as a result of this and, you know, anger for Israel's supposed airstrike. And there there were, there still is, I guess, the possibility that this could have ramifications for the legitimacy of Israel's continued actions in Gaza, right? Um, once public opinion starts turning against Israel in a significant way, which this incident has the potential to cause that will potentially constrain Israel's ability to carry out the military operations it feels is necessary to keep its its people safe. So even though all evidence points to the fact that this was not an Israeli uh, munition, it's still hard to undo the damage that's been done in some quarters of the world, particularly on the Arab street. How has Arab media been covering this now that there is evidence out there that this was not an Israeli missile as you said, it would have cost, you know, it would have caused way, way, way more damage than what happened. Um, there's video, there's audio. How is this now being covered in Arab media? They're sticking to the original story. Um, we're not seeing people recanting, expressing regrets, withdrawing their original statements. Most of them are sticking to the story. They're trying to poke holes in Israel's narrative, despite the overwhelming evidence that exists to support Israel's narrative. And the the simple lack of evidence to to suggest anything to the contrary and i have to say that is rather frustrating because you know as an as a news organization we pride ourselves on telling the story as completely as possible and quite frankly we will admit it when we get something wrong or we'll change you know a headline or we'll change the text to indicate that there is new information to contradict what we had said earlier and unfortunately we don't see that happening with other news organizations i can say that that's not true of everyone Um, The New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and others did have Israel's argument or Israel's claims as they were being released last night, which I think is is to their credit. But there there are far too many news organizations and journalists who I'd say did not have the integrity and don't yet have the integrity to to do that. Um, And that's uh, disappointing to see. And you're saying that as someone who runs an Israeli newspaper and if this had indeed been Israel, you would have covered it as such. Oh, for sure. I mean, look, you mentioned my my resume, uh, and it's true that I, I was a spokesperson for the Israel Defense Forces, and my role in that capacity was very different than my role today. And I think that there are some of my colleagues and friends who anticipated that I would approach this job 
uh, as just another form of advocacy for Israel. And that's not at all how I view the position. We're here to tell the, the whole story. And that means the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And it means the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's a lot of good, but there's also quite some bad and, and quite a bit of ugly. And we feel that it's our responsibility to do that responsibly. You know, we do it with a great deal of sensitivity. We don't want to cause any harm. But if there is a story to, to tell, of course, we'll tell it. And we've had numerous stories in recent days about the impact of the current situation on the residents of Gaza. Um, we don't have a correspondent in Gaza. It would not be safe for an Israeli journalist to be there. But we work with Reuters and other uh, news services to ensure that we are getting that side of the story as well. And certainly if it were found that uh, Israel was responsible for this this airstrike, of course, we would, uh, or the, what, what this purported airstrike, um, of course, we would have reported that and we would make sure that our, our readers know that as well. Avi, tell me about some of the stories you have been covering over the past couple of days and must be a great deal of difficulty. Everyone I know in Israel is, you know, not even a person removed from someone who is either killed or kidnapped. It must be really hard for you and your team to cover the atrocities and what's happened in Israel in the last 11, 12 days. What's that like? So I think that what took place on October the 7th was was beyond anyone's worst nightmare. I don't think anyone in Israel could have envisioned the type of carnage, the, the abject cruelty, the sheer number of people who were murdered was simply beyond anyone's ability to, to imagine. And, and quite frankly, it's still difficult for us to comprehend. And so we've been trying to tell the story, of course, by keeping our audience updated on what's going on since the moment this started two Saturday mornings ago until the present time, what the military response had looked like, the, the casualty counts, obviously, uh, but also telling the human stories. Every day we've had quite a few stories of uh, families whose loved ones have gone missing um, and are presumed kidnapped in Gaza, although they don't have that information because Hamas won't disclose it. Or stories of heroism, um, young people who were killed defending their homes, defending their communities, and also acts of, of volunteerism and generosity that we're seeing throughout Israeli society which has been totally mobilized to support the residents of Israel South, many of whom have been evacuated from their homes because their communities have been so decimated by the massacre. I will say that our newsroom has been affected in, in multiple ways. Firstly, of course, we're all in a state of shock and many of us are in a state of direct or indirect mourning. But there are members of our team who are on reserve duty. There are others who have kids or spouses who are on reserve duty and who are trying to navigate life you know, without that, those members of their, their household or with a great deal of concern for those members of, of their household. There are a lot of basic services, businesses that aren't open or operating at full capacity right now because so many Israelis, over 360,000 have been mobilized for reserve duty. Um, so that's, of course, affecting people as well. And then I would say on, on a simple psychological level, you know, the, the union of journalists in Israel has made mental health resources available to journalists covering this. And of course, I've made those available to my team. And I know several members of my team have availed themselves of those services. But it's it's really it's really tough. It's tough because it's just difficult being in Israel right now. And it's tough because it's our job to take some really horrible stories and and share them with the world. I was in the the area that was affected by the massacre just 2 days ago. I was in a place called Kibbutz Beri, which is one of the communities that was that was most directly affected by it. About 10% of the kibbutz's entire population was murdered. 
I was there with other editors in chief of, of newspapers in Israel. We were given a tour and, you know, they pointed out that in, you know, this house had to be demolished because terrorists had barricaded themselves there and there was no way to get to them other than, than, than essentially destroying the structure. And when they started picking through the rubble, they found the bodies of eight small children who had been tied up and shot dead. Um, and they found a couple that was killed while embracing. And in this other house, you know, every single house, every single place had a story. And as you walk around there, of course, you're keenly aware of just the carnage that took place in in that location. But the the thing that really struck me, and I have, have discussed this on several occasions over the past two days, was just the smell, the smell of death, which is something that I had never encountered before. I thankfully have not encountered a great deal of death, certainly not at that scale in my life. Um, it, it's something that I will never forget. It was it was pervasive everywhere. It, no matter where you went on the kibbutz, you smelled this. And I actually have friends who are serving on that kibbutz. It's now basically been turned into a military camp. There are hundreds and hundreds of soldiers who are there. Um, and I have several friends who are actually among the reservists who are on the base now. And they said that the day that it happened, the days after, the smell was so powerful that they just found themselves throwing up constantly. They were just constantly vomiting all over the place because it was just, it, you could not walk around and not be confronted with the very visceral sensation of death around you. And so encountering that is not easy. Um, I may at some point need therapy for this period as well. I'm obviously not there right now. This is still very much in the thick of it, but it's uh, it's a difficult job to do. And, and uh, it's sort of been thrust on us during this period. You know, another difficult job is some of the editorial decisions that you have to make. And, and I noticed in the Jerusalem Post, you know, the story of Mia Shem is pretty well known now around the world. This is the young French-Israeli woman who was taken hostage and Hamas released a hostage video of her the other day where her arm is being cast and in, in she, she has an injury that they're, that they're working on. Um, I noticed that you, in the Jerusalem Post, you linked to the video Hamas released. American media haven't shown that. What was behind your editorial decision to show the video of Mia um, that Hamas released? It wasn't an easy decision. And there was some back and forth on whether or not we should release it. We are keenly aware that Hamas utilizes these videos, sharing information or withholding information as part of their psychological warfare efforts, right? To apply pressure on the Israeli government through the Israeli public who see these people, who want them to come home, and therefore who will theoretically allow or have the capacity to bear any number of sacrifices in order for that to happen. And of course, we don't want to cooperate with Hamas uh, psychological warfare. On the other hand, the video was out there. It was being circulated by other media outlets, and we felt that it would do our audience a disservice by not sharing it with them. Um, so we made that call. We did decide to to share it. Another conflict that we had the other day was about these reports of Israeli babies who had been slaughtered um, on one of the kibbutzim. An Israeli reporter who visited uh, this location shared with her audience that she heard from several of the officers there that 40 babies had been killed and several had been beheaded. And this started circulating on the internet. There were many, many people who challenged this, who said it can't possibly be true. Show us the evidence, show us the evidence. And so Israel made a decision that it, it makes extremely rarely 
which is which was to, to show the bodies of the victims. It's, it almost never does. Um, this is a matter of policy that Israel does not show the bloodied and mangled bodies of terror victims out of a sense of uh, dignity of the dead um, and, and not to stoop to Israel's enemy's level. But this time it felt that the, the chorus of voices challenging this information was just too strong and Israel had to do something in response. So it released these images. The images are... Uh, nauseating. There are no words for how awful these images are. And again, we were we were confronted with the question of whether or not we should share those images with our audience. And you know, we had an item. We put out an item pretty quickly after we saw the images, saying that we had seen the photos that corroborated this claim. But ultimately, we chose not to embed those photos on our website. We linked to uh, an Israeli government's Twitter account that had the, the photos and said. If you want to see them, this is where you can. You can note that it's they're very graphic and disturbing, and that's basically the the way we navigated that. But there are decisions like this every day. Now you're covering President Biden's visit to Israel. He's there today, meeting with Bibi Netanyahu and and others in the coalition government. What is the story there, and how do the Israeli people feel about President Biden's visit? What's the mood of the nation? The president's response has been nothing short of uh, stellar. Um, I think Israelis are extremely grateful to the president and to his administration, including to Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin, um, who have been so openly supportive, have shown such uh, powerful solidarity with the people of Israel in their time of pain. It's remarkable that the president is making his first ever or any American president's first ever wartime visit to Israel to express his solidarity and his sense of identification with Israeli pain that is very much appreciated by the Israeli public. It is also understood that there are going to be conversations about how Israel carries out its response. Um, There are indications that Israel has held back from the ground offensive, at least in part, in anticipation of the president's visit and, and whatever deliberations might happen between the leaders uh, during that time. And, you know, one of the concerns that some have expressed is that the president's visit and some of the messaging being received from the U.S. administration are are going to serve to constrain Israel or prevent Israel from doing what it feels it has to do in order to strike Hamas a sufficient blow and deplete its military capacity. So um, there is some concern about that, I think, on the Israeli street. At the same time, the fact that the U.S. has sent two carrier groups to the eastern Mediterranean in order to deter Hezbollah and its patrons in Iran from becoming involved in this conflict, opening up a northern front on Israel's Lebanese border or perhaps elsewhere, I think is is a powerful statement and hopefully one that will serve the intended purpose and prevent this conflict from getting any more extensive than it is now. Not to mention thousands of U.S. troops. Yes. Yeah, so... Right. Obviously, as part of the carrier group, there are troops, but there have also been suggestions that several thousand U.S. military personnel are on standby to deploy if necessary. Our understanding is that we're not talking about combat troops or infantry units. We're talking mostly about support staff, medical staff and things like that. But uh, yes, of course, that is very much appreciated as well. So the question I think everybody wants to know is what's next? And, you know, you hear calls for restraint as you just mentioned, for Israel to not wage a ground offensive. Is a ground offensive all but certain? It appeared to be, and I still think it is more likely than not. But the longer 
Israel waits, I would say the less likely it is to happen for all sorts of reasons. First of all, it's it's not easy to maintain several hundred thousand reserve reserve soldiers on standby for a very, very long time. The legitimacy of Israel's actions, even though you know in, it is sort of inherently or objectively legitimate, but the perception of that legitimacy in the international realm becomes less as the days go on and as the the initial impact of the carnage is somewhat lost. And as as we know, there are efforts behind the scenes to try and find some other solution or try to prevent Israel from engaging in this military action. I still do think that it is likelier to happen than not, but the days ahead will be will be fairly key in determining what that looks like. Initially, Israeli officials, including the prime minister, the defense minister and others, had said that essentially Hamas was going to be wiped out, um, that its military capacity was going to be erased in the course of this campaign. And we're not hearing that sort of rhetoric anymore. So we don't know what the goals will be. I don't know how much the Israeli public, quite frankly, will tolerate short of a total destruction of Hamas's military capacity and its ability to carry out a massacre like this ever again. But that's going to have to be a military and, frankly, political calculus that the president, that the prime minister and his government are going to have to make. And how do the hostages figure into this whole picture? There's anywhere from 150 to 200 and up hostages. We actually don't even know an official count, really. How do they play into all this? Right. So there's no official count because Hamas won't disclose how many people they are holding. They've given sort of vague ideas, vague numbers to indicate that it's you know over 150 or whatever it is that they said. The last official figure that I saw in Israel was 199 families or the families of 199 people. It depends how you count because there are several families that have several members of their families that have been have been informed that their loved ones are in Gaza. So uh, that is very much on many Israelis' minds, and it's also on the minds of uh, members of other nations. It's about 40 different nations were represented amongst the victims of this attack. And there are many Americans, Brits, South Africans, French people, and so on and so forth, who are amongst the hostages. In terms of how that plays into the the military operation or planning for a military operation, I think it is certainly a factor. There's a, a likelihood that Hamas will use those hostages as human shields, will basically surround their leaders with Israeli hostages in order to prevent us from striking them. I don't know to what extent that's going to factor into the decision-making process, because essentially that would just constrain Israel's ability to do anything at all. So I, I don't envy the prime minister. I would not want to be in his shoes right now, having to potentially order an airstrike that could kill Israeli hostages alongside the intended Hamas targets. But those are the sort of dilemmas that are part and parcel with a situation like this one. Yeah, these are really difficult, if not impossible, decisions for any government to make. What are you hearing about the strain on the Israeli government and the Israeli military in terms of decision making? I think that, you know, in the initial days, there's a great deal of determination in the Israeli public to, to deal Hamas a blow that it can never recover from. People were very, I don't want to say gung-ho, but very supportive of any effort to, to deal that blow to Hamas. And as the days go on and what all we're seeing are airstrikes and this ground offensive seems to be delayed, I think you're you're seeing more frustration amongst the Israeli public. And that, of course, must have an effect on, on Israel's decision makers, both military and civilian. And so 
I obviously am not on the on the inside. I don't know exactly what's going on behind closed doors, but I imagine there's a lot of conversation going on right now about what it is that Israel can reasonably do that will achieve its objectives and, and quite frankly, satisfy the Israeli public's need to know that Israel is doing whatever it can to keep them safe. And right now, I'm not sure that that is happening. Avi, finally, and I want to let you go because I know you've got a lot left to do even just today. But what's next? And and what do you think of the Hezbollah equation here? We haven't talked about that yet, really. Hezbollah is sitting to the north of Israel. And, you know, it's obvious that Israel might have to fight a two-front war. What's next? Well, we certainly hope that Israel does not have to fight a, a two-front war. Quite frankly, Israel doesn't want to fight any wars. But uh, there's no need for there to be a northern front at the moment, unless Hezbollah and Iran decide that there ought to be. There have been several cross-border skirmishes in recent days and that have drawn several casualties on both sides. There have been mortars, rockets, anti-tank missiles that have been fired from Lebanon into Israel. Hezbollah has taken credit for several of those attacks. Hamas took credit for some others. And Israel has responded in a very pinpoint and targeted way. It's not in, it's not in Israel's interest at the moment to open a northern front that would stretch Israel's capacity. I don't think that it would impair Israel's capacity. I think Israel could, in fact, fight a two-front war, and it's something that has been on the minds of Israeli military decision makers for a very long time, but it's not a situation that Israel wants to be in. And so there's a lot of diplomatic pressure going on against the Iranians who, of course, directly control Hezbollah. Um, Secretary Blinken engaged in a lot of shell diplomacy in the region over the past few days, going from one country to the other, trying to figure out how we can prevent, on the one hand, deal with the situation in Gaza and prevent it from escalating dramatically further, while at the same time preventing Hezbollah and Iran from becoming involved on the northern front. And, I, and again, the fact that the United States sent military forces to the region, I think, was a powerful statement of deterrence. Um, and the fact that the president himself has said rather publicly, as has have members of his cabinet, uh, that if Iran is thinking of getting involved, it really shouldn't, I think also sends a very powerful message. Avi, thanks so much for your time today and helping us, you know, try to understand this incomprehensible situation um, just a little bit better. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 